My, my film is not a movie. My film is not uh, about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money, too much equipment. And little by little, we went insane. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. The end of our elaborate plans. The end of everything that stands. The end, no safe. Welcome to episode 26 of the Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and we've got a very special guest on tonight's episode. He's the face of Comics Connection and a member of the Wrong Real Crew, which by default makes him a cinephile of the very highest standing. But he's also been one of the most active supporters of Film 89 since it began, so both myself and the rest of the Film 89 team are extremely happy that he's finally making his Film 89 podcast debut tonight. It is Mr. John Arminio. John, welcome to Film 89. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be a guest. John, just for our listeners who, who may not know who you are, just tell them a little bit about yourself, about how you got into podcasting, about you know your day job and obviously your your massive love of comics. Yeah, so I work at a store called Comics Connection, that's Comics with an X, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, I've been a lifelong comic book reader and lover. Uh, I'm evangelizing the activity of reading physical books in 2019, so I'm a bit of a quixotic individual, I guess. Um, But I'm also a huge cinephile. Uh, I've been listening to Wrong Reel for a few years now, um, and my first podcast appearance uh, was on actually Hellbent for Horror episode 60, uh, episode 50, I'm sorry. And I've been just always a podcast guest, never host since then, but it's always fun and it's always a privilege that people are willing to listen to my uh, dumbass opinions about things. Well, that's because you've always got something interesting to say. You know, you, it, um, well, thank you. I think your, your most recent guest appearance, was it was back on Hellbent for Horror, wasn't it, with, um, with Scott Bradley, Guillermo del Toro episode. Yeah, that was a huge honor because uh, not only is Scott Bradley worthy of a goddamn Peabody Award, but um, Guillermo del Toro is one of my heroes. So that that, that was a, a great episode. Since then, I've actually done a, a 26 Moves from Hell episode with Dan Pullen and Bradley J. Cornish, and that was a lot of fun. The one with Halpern for Horror, the, the Guillermo del Toro one, was just fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah and it, it was nice, actually, that you guys were embracing the fact that you know he, he is a horror director of a sort. Yet, he, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't get categorized as a horror director. I think because the body of his work is so broad. 
Yeah, and I think like if you look at the work of a director like James Whale, he wasn't making a horror movie. Like you got the impression that James Whale was as much in love with the Frankenstein's monster as Guillermo del Toro is in love with, you know, the fish creature in the shape of water. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of see Guillermo del Toro in much more in in that sort of cinema heritage and so it's pretty magical for me every time I get to sit and, and watch a del Toro movie. Yeah, it was a fantastic episode, and you know, I think I, I think I tweeted, didn't I? I said something like, you know, fair play to John for having the balls to go up against one of the podcasting heavyweights. But you just, you know, yeah, <laughs> it, it was a fantastic conversation between you both, and you know, Thank Scott you. Bradley is just—he's an absolute gentleman, and he is just so knowledgeable and just just so giving. He's been supportive of us, and and you know, we're just huge fans of his podcast and his book as well, Screaming for Pleasure, which is an absolutely yeah. fantastic book. Yeah, I think if anybody out there has any interest in horror movies, that's an essential book. Screaming for pleasure. Buy that book. Obviously, his specialty is horror. But one of the things that threw me about that book is it, it covers the whole gamut of everything. You know, mm-hmm. things like Jaws comes up. You know, he makes reference to just basically his experience in film and, and how he fell in love with film. And it doesn't necessarily focus just on horror. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Jaws is one of those movies where a lot of people can say, who who might say, oh, I don't like a horror movie. But if you put Jaws in front of them and ask them what appeals oh, yeah. to them about that movie, it's part of that is the horror elements. And I think, you know, a lot of the the moments in that movie that aren't horrific, like when, you know, Quince and uh, all the other crew are just kind of trading drunken stories in in the boat, that, that is like a magical piece of cinema. But that non-horror sequence actually makes the terror more striking later in the movie, and I think good horror films acknowledge that. And so that's why Jaws is kind of an, an essential horror film, in my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, he Scott even makes reference and, and uses Rocky as an example of a film which which kind of like brought a, a particular demographic together you know again rocky in no, that's in no way a horror film but you know it, it yeah. just he, he uses any sort of film as long as it's relevant to sort of illustrate how film got it, it, its teeth into him uh, yeah you know it's a, yeah. it's a fantastic book that's my absolute yeah. highest recommendation so john obviously you know being a man you know to whom comics are incredibly important what should our listeners be reading at the moment well i'm a huge Tom King fan, uh, so I've been really enjoying Heroes in Crisis and his Batman run. I know he, he does some controversial things, but that's what I've been enjoying about his run. I think it, if you're writing a character like Batman, he's been around 80 years, you kind of have to take some some risks with the character. <laughs> so the big to-do right now is with Marvel is War of the Realms, where a bunch of Thor's villains are invading, the, invading Asgard, I'm sorry, Midgard. And that's been a lot of fun because Jason Aaron is another one of my one of my favorite writers, and he's been killing on Thor for the past few years. Looking forward to uh, Colin Bunn and Tyler Crook, who are going to be doing a new, as of yet unnamed horror series. They did one a few years ago called Harrow County. That's one of my all-time favorite horror anything's ever. Um, so if you love horror, you love comics, pick up Harrow County. It's about witchcraft in the South during the Depression. It's beautiful. Beautiful stuff. And also, um, Conan the Barbarian is back in Marvel, and that's been, excuse mm. my language, but fucking awesome. <laughs> Huge fan of Conan. And um, just to show another side of when we're done with this, I'm going to be breaking out the uh, the newest Unbeatable Squirrel Girl comic by Ryan North. That That is a comic that has made me laugh consistently since its inception, and I've never laughed harder at a comic than that one, and it's 
If you need a smile on your face, read Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Thank you for those recommendations, John. So before we um, go on to the film we're going to be delving into tonight, uh, and as much as this will probably age the episode for people who are listening to it months down the line, yesterday Disney dropped the episode 9 trailer. Obviously we've all had time now to watch it <laughs> umpteen times and to pour over it, to freeze frame it, to look at all the little easter eggs. What are your thoughts? Just like with the trailer for The Last Jedi, I have mixed feelings. I kind of don't know what to make of Star Wars anymore. Ever since I saw The Last Jedi, it feels like Disney and the Star Wars fan community have been kind of having this push and pull with Disney giving us what it thinks the Star Wars fans want in a blockbuster Star Wars movie mm-hmm. and what fans actually want. But since there's so many Star Wars fans, you can't really please everyone. So it's always going to be a kind of a mixed bag. And I think The Last Jedi was such a drastic turning of the ship from The Force Awakens. I'm I'm just kind of befuddled. Like, is that supposed to be Palpatine laughing at the end? I thought he was dead. If he's not dead, what was the whole point of the ending of Return of the Jedi? So, I don't know. What do you think, Sky? (laughs) In order to answer that question, I, I've I've got to probably remove myself from my own experience with Star Wars and sort of look at maybe look at it from the point of view of the casual Star Wars fan. If you watch the series in chronological order from which they were released, and then obviously in 1983, in Return of the Jedi, the Emperor was killed at the end. It's been confirmed by both Ian McDermott and J.J. Abrams himself that the Emperor is coming back. Depending on how much of the now sort of non-canon expanded Star Wars universe uh, you're familiar with, uh, Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire trilogy, uh, I think which is sort of like early 90s, uh, it's a trilogy of books which I probably read twice over. Effectively, for a lot of people, those books formed episodes 7, 8 and 9 before this trilogy came along. It had all of the original characters, it was set a few years after Return of the Jedi, and one of the things, sort of one of the seeds that was planted in those books, which was later carried on then in further books, is the, the essence of the Emperor at, at the point um, above Endor, when the second Death Star got destroyed, because he was so powerful and because he was so evil, his essence sort of remained. I think, you know, in, in further books um, in the expanded universe, you know, the Emperor actually, you know, made a full on comeback. In, in many ways, bringing the Emperor back after they've introduced Snoke in the first two films it kind of makes Snoke redundant as a character. Yeah, then, exactly. You know, I think as a lot of people are now becoming aware, this new trilogy hasn't been planned out in detail from start to finish. You know, even Ryan Johnson, uh, he said in the Director's Cut podcast, I think it was December 17th, 2017, just after The Last Jedi had been released. He actually went on record to say that when he took over from J.J. Abrams, there wasn't in place any solid kind of story outline across you know what we all thought was a planned trilogy so i think you know obviously the last jedi being as as hugely polarizing as it is i'm with you john uh, as people familiar with you know the, the first episode of this podcast where we spoke about the last jedi and then obviously the the huge article that i wrote um, as a review for the website i am not a fan of the film and if anything I've not warmed to the film at all since it came out. You know, well, you know, a, a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and, and that's putting it putting it mildly. It it couldn't have been easy for Ryan Johnson to step in and take forward this you know this second. With any trilogy, the second film is is always the most difficult. 
you've already got characters which have been introduced, so you haven't got a standard sort of three-arc story structure potentially. And then it, it's potentially going to be finishing, possibly on a cliffhanger, uh, you know, or, or carrying on to a third film where a lot of the plot threads which are introduced into the first and second films are going to be resolved in a later film. Uh, you know, what Ryan Johnson did with that film was... And, you know, I don't, I don't want to badmouth him any more than, you know, he's you because know, he's had a lot of stick on social media. That, you know, that film has got so many problems from my personal perspective. It's nice to see J.J. Abrams coming back. And to be honest with you, before that trailer dropped, dropped yesterday, I wasn't sure how I felt about Star Wars anymore. And I wasn't yeah. particularly excited about it. But I've got to say, from that trailer, and me now being probably one of the most disenfranchised sort of Star Wars fans, I, I thought... It captured a lot of the magic of Star Wars and it looked to kind of be putting things back on track if the tone of that trailer is what we actually see in the final film. You know, we, we saw two minutes out of a film that's probably going to be two hours plus. So it's extremely hard to tell. And half of it could not even be in the final movie. Exactly, yeah. You know, how many times have we been here now with Disney and Marvel where they're dropping trailers with footage that isn't in the final film? J.J. Abrams has also got an extremely difficult sort of task of giving a final send-off to Carrie Fisher. And you know, we all thought that that was something that was going to be done in The Last Jedi, but, you know, yeah. you know spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the film, they, they actually got rid of Luke Skywalker, or did they? I have so many pieces of frustration with both The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, because if I'm getting Han Solo and Luke Skywalker back for another trilogy, like, I want to see them together. Yeah, like, absolutely. I, 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 like, if we're going to revisit another Death Star and another desert planet, give me another scene with mm. the three of them hanging out in the Millennium Falcon. That's all I want. Like, it's not that much to ask, I don't think, if you're doing another trilogy. And so none of, and so because of the deaths of these characters, we're never going to get that. Part of the reason why The Last Jedi hurts so much for me as a lover of just film is that it's clear that Ryan Johnson is an extraordinarily skilled filmmaker. And he's dealing with some very potent themes about, like, you know, letting the past go, letting it die, burning it down, literally. But then the film kind of, like, warps back on itself and says, no, in fact, we need the legend of Skywalker to live mm -hmm. on. So it's so contradictory and it doesn't get its characters right. And if Ryan Johnson just had $100 million to make a science fiction epic, it'd probably be pretty good. But because he's tasked with this middle episode in Disney's franchise flagship Star Wars, it, it collapses on its own weight. And that makes me very sad as a lover of Ryan Johnson's other films, as a lover of science fiction, as a lover of movies, and as a lover of Star Wars. Like, I want to like these movies so much, but they're making it real difficult <laughs> right now. You know, on, on the flip side of that, depending on your opinions of them, we were given Rogue One, which is personally for me definitely falls in the camp of great star wars films agreed i think rogue one kicks ass i love that yeah movie. i and again i'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible i'm not trying to shit too much on the last jedi and i'm not trying to say yeah woohoo you know i love rogue one but i do i love rogue one i absolutely love it and i've got to yeah. be honest with you solo was it, it was kind of like a band-aid because when we recorded our solo episode it was myself steve amos and jim cottle uh, Jim and I absolutely hated The Last Jedi and when we all sat down together that day we were thinking oh Jesus we actually really quite enjoyed Solo so is is Steve going to actually rail against it now and he was exactly like us he really enjoyed the film you know the only unfortunate thing is as much as Solo was far from being a, a bad Star Wars film it, it 
again, you know, it, it's not as good as Rogue One for me and it's not as good as the original trilogy. But from mm-hmm. purely, you know, an enjoyment point of view, I actually enjoyed it better than The Force Awakens. And you know, I certainly enjoyed it a hell of a lot more than the prequel trilogy and The Last Jedi. So, you know, it was it was nice to have a Star Wars film that sort of we all appreciated and, you know, kind of gave us hope that the franchise wasn't damaged beyond repair. And again, looking at this trailer that we saw yesterday, it, it shows that in the right hands, this franchise could go somewhere. My, my only issue I've got is how invested I'm going to be now in these characters because I've got to be honest with you, I'm not particularly endeared to Ray or Finn or any of the characters that we've seen introduced in this new trilogy. I even like those characters quite a bit. I love Ray. I love Finn. I think Poe Dameron is an awesome, like, you know, badass pilot character. But if I never see The Last Jedi again, it'll be too soon. So <laughs> Exactly. And it, I, I, I'm never going to overcome my dislike of that film. It's just got too many problems and it's caused, yeah. outside of the film itself, it's caused so much sort of friction between Star Wars fans. I've never seen a film as polarizing as this because obviously the people who loved the film then saw the huge backlash against it and that probably solidified their love for it. Much like yeah. the people like us who really didn't like the film saw these people who in our eyes are like, well, you know, are they crazy? Do they not see what we all see? And, and these two sort of opposing viewpoints cannot meet I, i've yet to meet someone who loves the film who can see why you know people like you and me don't like the film and it also doesn't feel good to be on the side of like racist trolls oh who yeah God, bombard yeah. the social media accounts of its cast yeah. like i don't want to agree with those people like they're scum and are and are poisoning the fan community of star wars and like movies as a whole so like, when did this thing that gave me so much joy mm. as, like, a six-year-old lead to so much, like, poison on the internet? It's yeah. very strange. Yeah, you know, second that, absolutely. You know, the way Kelly Marie Tran was treated online was just completely inexcusable. Whatever you think of her performance and her character in the film, she was just there doing a job. And, yeah. you know, from all the interviews I've seen with her, she's a lovely, bubbly, you know, full-of-life person. And to see her beaten down like that is just, you know, it's just really poor and, you know, yeah. We absolutely need to sort of distance ourselves from those sorts of people and those trolls, for want of a better word. This is uh, heavy stuff for a Star Wars discussion. <laughs> Let, let's lighten things up a little bit uh, and with move on from now. Star Wars. With Yes, tonight's film is the 1979 Vietnam classic, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, based loosely on Joseph Conrad's 1899 novella Hearts of Darkness. Oh, Heart of Darkness, sorry, which was the basis of a script written by John Melias. John, tell us how you first came to see Apocalypse Now. I mean, I first saw this movie in high school just from renting it on home video, and it completely blew my adolescent mind out of the water. Uh, I found it incredibly compelling, incredibly hypnotizing. I immediately bought the um, Redux version uh, when that was released. Um, I found that version overly muddled but you know interesting and it's it's a difficult film to categorize and actually revisit and enjoy like you might like the subject of your last episode the burbs but um i've always like held those images in my mind you know those open explosions and the doors music of you know willard killing kurt interspersed with the sacrifice of the caribou at the end spoilers Um, yeah (laughs) 
Sorry. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a tiger suddenly being in, in the Vietnamese jungle, jungle. Like, it, it's this strange, mad journey through both Coppola's own psyche, through these characters' psyche, and through the Vietnam. It's not how Vietnam was, but it's how Vietnam felt to both the people in Vietnam and to America. Couldn't put it back myself. My, my own experience with Apocalypse Now is I, I certainly saw it long before Redux came out, probably mid-90s. Um, I was going through a phase of just, you know, having seen The Godfather probably early 90s and The Godfather Part 2. The next one I went to was The Conversation. And then after that was Apocalypse Now. So I pretty much saw the four big 70s Coppola films in chronological order. And Apocalypse Now was the last one I saw. I can't say I fell in love with it straight away, but I certainly appreciated it from the start. As much as at the time, films like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket were probably my go-to Vietnam films. Apocalypse Now is a film that grew on me. And it grew and grew and grew to the point when... They eventually released The Redux in 2001. Whilst I wasn't able to watch that theatrically... As soon as that film came out on VHS, you know, I was all over it. Like, sorry, not VHS, um, DVD. That was the first time then I actually saw Hearts of Darkness. So I, I'd seen the film years before, and then, and then I saw the longer version, and then I also saw it around about the same time I saw Hearts of Darkness, which is the um, Eleanor Coppola uh, documentary. I think, was it 1991 that came out? 1991, yes. Yeah. Now, I'd never seen Hearts of Darkness before. So all of a sudden then, I'm getting all of this additional footage from the Redux version, and then also the you know the sort of incredible behind-the-scenes stuff of Apocalypse. Now, which, that kind of enriched my appreciation of the film. Because much like when James Hancock joined Steve Amos and I uh, back in, I think, episode 17 to talk about Cleopatra. Cleopatra is a film that I don't think is particularly strong in, in the sort of um, category of historical epics. But the behind-the-scenes making of the film is is more fascinating than the film itself. With Apocalypse Now, the film itself is, is phenomenal, and the behind-the-scenes documentaries and and you know all, all the all the stories and and you know the the troubled shoot just enriches your experience of the film. Um, you know, I think we'll come on to Redux and, and what we think of that later. John, what do you know about the you know the initial inception of the film and and how this basically turned into one of the the craziest, most out-of-control productions that Hollywood's ever seen? Well, I know that. The initial idea for this movie came about even before the Godfather films as a sort of like fall documentary 16 millimeter handheld, like small cast, small budget guerrilla style filmmaking filmed in Vietnam. And obviously uh, (laughs) that didn't happen. Um, But I think, you know, uh, filmmakers and financiers just kind of got terrified of it. Uh, George Lucas, who was the kernel of of that idea, actually um, said this is going to be a bad idea. And it eventually fell through. Um, Coba became like the toast of Hollywood after the Godfather films and was then able to kind of finance this insane expedition into the jungle and relocated to the Philippines. And like if you, you know, if you've seen Hearts of Darkness, you know, he partnered with the quote unquote president of the (laughs) Philippines to like commandeer helicopters that were also fighting rebels in the Philippine jungle. One thing that I did find fascinating about Hearts of Darkness is that George Lucas said that he told Coppola that if you bring a big Hollywood production into the jungle and try to make an epic movie, you will drown in it. Like, it will it'll destroy you. And I think he should have listened to his friend. Yeah, well, I think by this point, you know, Lucas hadn't even made Star Wars. Initially, the plan was that George Lucas was going to shoot this film in Vietnam during the tail end of the war on 16mm. That would have been, you know, the idea of doing something like that 
aside from being incredibly dangerous. No studio would have ever backed a project like that unless they were selling it as a documentary, which clearly they couldn't because you can't go to a studio head and say, look, I want X amount of million dollars for this, in inverted commas, documentary, and then turn around and say, look, what we've actually shot is a film. It's not going to work. So obviously, eventually, George Lucas went off. You know, he did things like American Graffiti and then later Star Wars. It, it fell to Francis Ford Coppola, who had just come off, you know, an incredible run from 1972 to 74 of The Godfather, The Conversation, and The Godfather Part Two. I think shooting began in, I think, was it March 1976 in the Philippines? As you said, John, he had made an agreement with um, the Philippines government who would loan him helicopters and he would be allowed to use them. But then, as we'll later come to, you know, the very same helicopters were actually being used to fight off communist insurgents. So, uh, you know, at, at any point during the shoot, the Philippine government could step in and say, sorry, Mr. Coppola, we need our helicopters and you, you might not get them back for days or weeks. Fr- from the very start, I, I can't see that it was a very well-planned film from the start. And, and I think they were, you know, pe- people like you say, you know, George Lucas told him, if you go out to somewhere like the Philippines, it's not going to be a controlled environment like Hollywood. And up until that point, everything Coppola had made had been incredibly locked down and extremely well planned and thought out. From that point of view, it, from the very start, from the very inception, this was always going to be a troubled shoot. I just don't think that the studio had any idea that things were going to get as crazy and as out of control as they did. Coppola himself said, Apocalypse Now is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Yeah. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and, very, and little by little we went insane. Which is, yeah, that is one of my favorite quotes is it's from um i think it was from his appearance in this 1979 Cannes film festival we're gonna introduce your movie <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah we're gonna introduce your movie mr coppola what can you tell us about it i think originally harvey Keitel was set to play captain benjamin willard he went out there i think he actually shot a considerable amount of footage with Keitel over the course of several weeks at which point coppola decided that Keitel wasn't right for the role and then he cast Martin Sheen, who apparently was originally the director's first choice anyway. Like, if you listen to Coppola talk about casting both Willard and Kurtz, like he had just a laundry list of everyone from Pacino to Robert Redford to Jack Nicholson, who he considered for either of those roles. And it's for somebody who's so controlled and so precise in the way he's made his movies, especially at, well, at least until this point, for him to vacillate so much to the point where he's recasting the main character weeks into shooting, like it boggles my mind. Well, I think it was um, Pacino had actually said, Francis, you want me to go out to the Philippines uh, and shoot this film? And just something tells me that I'm just going to be sat on my ass in the middle of the jungle, in the pouring rain, in the heat and humidity. No, sorry, I'm going to have to pass. What do you think it was that caused Harvey Keitel to kind of get pushed out in favor of Martin Sheen? From what it appears to me, just Ke- Keitel was too intense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He probably gave off the energy that Kurtz would have, and that would I would actually like to see that movie where Keitel is playing Kurtz. Mm. But you needed somebody who you could read into, and I think that's what Martin Sheen gives in his performance, both in his narration and in his on-screen presence, because he's such kind of like a vessel for our own interpretation of what's going on. He's the passive observer. You know, he's kind of like Ishmael in Moby Dick. Everything is interpreted through his eyes. And so if you have a character who's pushing the boat 
and the narrative forward, the film just wouldn't work. And I think that's what Keitel was probably doing. Normally, a director such as Coppola recognized that in the audition process, but in this case, it was not to be. I agree with you there, John. I think that Harvey Keitel would be far too intense an actor to take on you know, the role of Willard. We learn throughout the course of the film, and well, well, do we learn much about Willard, really? You look at the redux, which we'll come to later, where this, there's a lot more Willard footage, which sort of gives you a bit more information about the character. Personally, I think that's to the detriment of the film, because in the theatrical cut, the way we've got Willard set out is, at the beginning, he has something of like a mini breakdown in, in that incredible opening scene. He's drugged up to his eyeballs, he's, he's drunk, he's... It's an extremely sort of intense introduction to a film, uh, to a character. But then after that, he's very much this sort of placid, sort of almost passive observer of, of things as we see this long journey up through, you know, up into hell. Whereas I think, yeah, Ka- Keitel, he would have been far too intense. And as much as I don't know if there's any surviving footage of Keitel, I certainly think the casting sheen was definitely the right decision going for the, the sort of character the Willard eventually became. I think you get as much as you need, like you get like scraps of paper and like a picture of a woman and mentions of of his wife that obviously are like meant to hint the audience that he's been divorced. But there's also moments where he takes control of the situation or just the way he looks at certain characters, the way he his physicality changes that you can glean that this relatively slight, physically insignificant man is very, very deadly Mm. and knows how to kill you in a hundred different ways. And you get from his kind of steely gaze that he's the right person to be sent off to kill the most dangerous man in Vietnam in Colonel Kurtz. And I I don't know if the bravado that Keitel would have brought to the role, it would have come off as false, I, I think, in a movie like this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think when, when Sheen himself asked Coppola, he said, Francis, who is my character and, and what is he feeling? And Coppola's response was, he's you. Your character is you and he is whatever you are feeling now on, on, on the day we're shooting. That, that is proof that Willard's character was sort of molded from the sort of person and the experiences of Martin Sheen at the time. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, there's the famous story of Coppola encouraging Sheen to get drunk as hell during the seen in the apartment you know there's a myriad of actors you know from jack lemon to nicholas cage who have been drunk on screen for famous roles who have said that is the last thing you want to do it's interesting that you get such a powerful scene out of a really real life desperate moment sheen in real life punched the mirror in real life cut his hand and that's his real blood on screen and if that's not a metaphor for what it was like making this movie i don't know what is yeah you know they even called you know they they had a doctor on set which coppola called out after he cut himself but sheen said no you know he wanted to deal with it himself as it, it would fuel how strung out both the actor and the characters were at the time. That opening hotel room scene with the transition from, you know, the helicopters flying across the jungle background, the music, which, do we tackle that now? You know, opening to the, you know, the end by the doors. Even the footage we initially see before, you know, we transition into that, that's that's actually footage just taken from the middle part of the film. It's sort of all out of sync with regards to the narrative, but it works perfectly to sort of pull you into this, what is basically one long sort of tripped out version of, you know, the Vietnam War. The narration. Now, I, I don't know, you know how you feel about narration, John, but people say that when you're writing a script, and if you're going to rely too heavily on narration, it can become something of a crutch and something that really, you know, some people think should be avoided. 
personally, I don't agree with that. I think there's a lot of films where narration has worked. Um, examples where it hasn't, such as you know Blade Runner, which you know the narration didn't work for a lot of people. But then you've got films like Fight Club, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, films which rely strongly on narration. I think it helps the films a hell of a lot. And I can't think of a better example of a film where the narration just adds so much to it than Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I think the narration is essential for this movie and then how the audience can interpret the events, interpret who Willard is, interpret who Kurtz is, and just generate an emotional attachment to what's going on because the actual on-screen imagery is so hallucinatory and so, you know, non-linear that you need somebody guiding you through to show you the insanity of the Vietnam War through, you know, what how the military is handling Kurtz, what Kurtz has done, the hypocrisy of American foreign policy, because there's few more complicated topics in the Vietnam War. And if you're going to make an entertaining movie to kind of excoriate American policy, you need somebody to kind of guide you into that mode of thinking. And so in this case, that narration is essential. And like you said, there's some wonderful examples of narration being used in film. You know, I'm a huge fan of film noir. You know, pretty much every great film noir has some form of voiceover in it. And I think using voiceover as a crutch is something you tell to screenwriting students, you know, because they need to exercise their craft. But if you're Francis Ford Coppola and John Milius, you're probably good enough to know when narration is necessary for a movie. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. In a film as visual as this, where you're also trying to get inside the mind of a character who is trying to get his head around an extremely complex character who he has been tasked to kill. Narration, from that point of view, is the perfect way to sort of get inside both his mind and the mind of the guy that he's studying, the, the guy who was, he, who was eventually going to become his prey, for want of a better word. Yeah, for such a visually extravagant movie, it's also such a psychologically interior story about these two characters sort of psychically circling each other. So without narration, it's half a movie. Yeah, and you know the opening scene. You, you talk about the visuals. You know, people say about that transition in Lawrence of Arabia, where Peter O'Toole is holding the burning match, letting it burn down, and then he blows it out, and it transitions to that incredible sunrise. I think, from a sonic point of view, a shot that's equal to that is the transition from the helicopter blades into that of the ceiling fan. Yeah, it. You know, the the sound design in Apocalypse Now is absolutely phenomenal. Obviously, no surprise given the fact that Coppola you know, had directed The Conversation, another film which had phenomenal um, you know, sound design. You know, that, that was crucial to the film itself. And I think it was, was it um, Walt, Walter Murch did the, um, the sound design um, in The Conversation and both that and Apocalypse Now? He, I think he was both an editor and a sound designer. And obviously that scene there showing the transition from the helicopter blades to ceiling fan is, is, both, an, is both a sound design and an editorial sort of example it's just a remarkable scene and then you know, you just go into that into, into that dialogue Saigon shit I'm still only in Saigon every time I think I'm gonna wake up back in the jungle when I was home after my first tour it was worse I'd wake up and there'd be nothing I hardly said a word to my wife until I said yes to a divorce when I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. I'm here a week now, waiting for a mission, getting softer. Every minute I stay in this room, I get weaker. And every minute Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. 
Each time I looked around, the walls moved in a little tighter. Yeah, so then after we see, you know, Willard have his little breakdown in this um, hotel room in Saigon, two soldiers turn up and, you know, he's given orders. The next scene that we're in is he him meeting up with General Corman, played by G.D. Spradlin, Colonel Lucas, uh, played by Harrison Ford, and another character that we only know as, as Jerry, who actually in the credits is credited as the civilian. Now, he was played by the film's assistant director, Jerry Zeismer. And in that scene, Willard is briefed on the rogue colonel, Walter E. Kurtz, and his mission to terminate Kurtz's command with extreme prejudice. Now, what I love about that scene, John, is that Jerry's only line in the scene is terminate with, with extreme, extreme prejudice. prejudice. Yet he's, he's constantly eyeing up Willard as if he's studying him. Now, Jer- Jerry's referred to as, in inverted commas, a civilian, but I think it's quite clear that he is there to represent the CIA. That whole scene, in any other film, that would be just an exposition dump. This is where we're going to set up the plot of the film. But so much of it is, it, it's a comment on what we eventually find out that Kurtz is, who is a guy who's gone crazy. You know, everyone in that room and everyone watching this movie is aware that Kurtz is insane. But also, this is a group of men telling a hardened soldier, like, oh, mm-hmm, stay away from the shrimp. If you eat that, you're braver men than I. And then talk, commenting on the roast beef, like, who the fuck are you? Like, giving me lunch and then talking about the this insane man who's gone off the reservation. Like, hundreds of thousands of civilians are being killed by American napalm, and you're in here complaining about how, how well your shrimp is cooked. So it's an insane situation from the start. So it's an exposition dump that gives you a clue into the sort of moral hypocrisy uh, that the film is exploring. And its imagery is so indelible that that sort of setup of men giving you information with like the suited man lurking in the background has been echoed in so many times. I think most notably like in the X-Files where the cigarette smoking man is hovering in the background and in the pilot of that series. And so in this jungle set war film, you have this indelible imagery from an office meal. Like, I just think that's such skillful cinema that, you know, I have to give my hat to Coppola for making an exposition dump into something so fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, you've got, apart from Martin Sheen himself, the the other three actors there and and their characters are all playing things completely differently. G.D. Spradlin's General Gorman, he looks uncomfortable when he's given the orders, but he's the one that's talking about the shrimp and, and, you know, he's sort of making light of things. And it's almost as if... He's just giving Willard, you know, orders to carry out a regular mission. But then you've got Colonel Lucas, Harrison Ford's character, who quite clearly is extremely uneasy about the whole thing because they are basically ordering an American soldier to go after one of their most decorated men and kill him. And then you've got Jerry Zeisman's character, who is more than likely CIA. He's not giving anything away. He is just there studying Willard. You know, there's so much to sort of read into that scene. And and then that blends perfectly then into the next scene where we get more narration. Willard is almost sort of commenting on the absurdity of why these men want want Kurtz killed. And, and that leads into one of my favourite lines in the whole film. Shit. Charging a man with murder in this place was like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. I took the mission. What the hell else was I going to do? But I really didn't know what I'd do when I found him. You know, that just sums up perfectly the insanity of, of the task that he's been set out to carry out. I mean, anybody who's studied or read about 
the Vietnam War knows that it's replete with horror stories of massacres and, you know, executions. And most of the uh, narration was, or all of it, was written by Michael Herr, who was a journalist and author of the book Dispatches, which is kind of the first real post-Vietnam, like, literary work that had an impact on American culture. And it's extremely important, I guess, historically and uh, on how America views the war Anybody who's familiar with any of that material can see like, oh, this is not about stopping chaos in Vietnam. This is about America saving face from this guy who's gone off the rails that we can't control anymore. And, you know, one of the big reveals from the Pentagon Papers, actually, was the breakdown of American priorities in the Vietnam War, which was 70 percent saving face, 20 percent stopping the spread of communism, 10% humanitarian. So the entire crux of Vietnam is based on basically a a hypocritical notion. And so this meeting really kind of manifests that um, in just one scene. And it helps the audience kind of become really uncomfortable with the entire journey of of the film, which I think is a daring move because there's two more hours to this movie. And so if the audience is already like everything that's going on here is bullshit, but still interested in watching, I think that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what you say there about this, you know, the 70% of that war was about saving face. Any war, you know, that the country goes into headlong is going to be extremely damaging to that country, you know, potentially, you know, win or lose, it, 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 it's going to have its consequences to, you know, the young men that they were sending out there. You know, there's going to be an incredible financial cost. But I think, you know, the Vietnam conflict was more damaging to America than, than any other conflict because it caused such a massive divide back home where you had, you know, the people who were protesting about the fact that, you know, America, from their point of view, had no right to get involved in this conflict whatsoever. And, you know, like you say, the, the motivations for America going into this war were just wrong from the start. Whereas with World War Two, there was a very clear enemy. And, you know, America weren't even involved from the start. And then when they did actually get involved after Pearl Harbor, it was a case of, there is no doubt, we are fighting against evil here. And, you know, the Nazis need to be stopped no matter what. Vietnam, on the other hand, was a completely different conflict with a whole different set of you know political dynamics you know behind it. And I think Apocalypse Now does a damn good job of subtly addressing that without actually you know hitting it you know the nail on the head with a hammer. And I think in context of when this movie was released, things like the release of the Pentagon Papers or the My Lai Massacre, like that was very recent news to viewers. So they were very cognizant of the fact that when they send Willard into Cambodia to execute another American, everything he does in Cambodia is technically illegal mm, yeah. because America was carrying out illegal bombing campaigns in Cambodia. And that was kind of a big deal. And so it's another layer of of hypocrisy when the U.S. government is executing its own soldiers. They're they're illegally in the first place, and they're ordering a new mission, which is also illegal, into Cambodia. So Willard now is given a a crew of of the the PBR boat. His next port of call is to meet up with Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore and his air cavalry. Just before that, just as they actually um, meet up with him, you've got a little scene of Willard's men. We've actually got a little bit of a, a, a snippet or, or a little scene with a TV news director filming the action as the soldiers are, are all running past. And obviously, the guy directing the action is Francis Coppola. N- nice little cameo. Yeah. Um, you know, a, n- a nice sort of little meta reference of here I am filming myself, filming 
actors in my own film. And I think it's interesting that that director is clearly cr- trying to create an artificial narrative of what is going on. So it's not like he's even a good director. Yeah. He's manipulating reality just like, you know, Coppola was doing. I thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah, it's a great little cameo. And then we come to what is probably... Um, you know the most talked about and the most revered and certainly the most famous scene in the whole of Apocalypse Now well the the, the sort of mini film that is Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore played by the legendary Robert Duvall I mean, it's it's a tour de force, like on on every level. I mean, the cinematography by Vittorio Storaro is just flat out astounding in, in these scenes. Um, it's incredibly compelling. It's some of the most like dynamic war footage ever shot in cinema history. But it's also like disgusting because the whole the only reason it's happening is so <laughs> Kilgore can get a good beach to surf on yeah it's it's insane so it's you know and you you have moments of individual hypocrisy from Kilgore like when he he encounters the the dying VC who's holding his own intestines and crying out for water and he says you know any man brave enough to hold his guts in uh, can drink from my canteen any day and so he kneels down to give him water and then he gets distracted and walks away before he gives him any water. Yeah, uh, he, he's yeah. <laughs> he's he's a madman and he's never going to die because he's kind of been endowed with manifest destiny. His soldiers love him. Uh, so he's just going to keep doing what he does. You know, air cav, death from above. And like you said, that little scene, he sees the wo- the wounded VC soldier and he says, you know, any man that's willing to hold his guts in you know, with, with a pot lid, is, is, you can drink from my canteen. But then as quickly as he does that and goes to give this dying man water... He sees that, you know, one of his crew says, that, oh, you know, I've just seen Lance, Lance Johnson, this famous surfer. And all of a sudden, he, he literally, you know, stops giving this guy water. And you know, the guy's barely drunk from his canteen. And he's up looking for this surfer guy. So it just goes to show how kind of, you know, he's got this honorable streak. But at the same time, there's clearly things that mean more to him than honor. In this case, yeah. surfing is more important to him. I mean, he has a hat that makes you think of General Custer. Like, he, yeah. the, the, the symbolism is not subtle for this character. Yeah, and 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 again, it goes back to you know Willard's incredible narration where mm-hmm. you know this guy just kind of had an aura about him. You just knew that he wasn't going to get so much of, uh, as a scratcher. And you, there are people like that. There are people who have just got a, an aura of confidence about them, just a complete belief in their ability that 
you just know that they are just going to sail through life. He, you know, Kilgore, when, when I first saw Apocalypse Now, that, that was always my favourite scene. But I always had in the back of my head, how realistic is that? You know, is that character just like a complete caricature? And it's only then when I saw Hearts of Darkness and then you listen to them actually saying, no, there were characters like this in the air calf. They would do crazy things like helicopter pilots would fly as low as possible into you know Viet Cong territory and try using the skis of the helicopter to pick up bicycles and steal them whilst they're being shot at just risking their life for no good reason other than that you know the hellish excitement of doing pulling off a stunt like that and it was only when I saw the documentary I thought well shit you know clearly they're taking cues from you know real life people here it was a crazy war you know once the soldiers had done one or two tours I'm, I'm sure that the whole craziness as we see with the characters in this film would have infected them and you know they think well yeah we're not over here to fight you know an outright enemy that needs to be sort of wiped off the face of the earth so shit i'm gonna have some fun and you know it was at that point where i thought god forbid they probably were men like kilgore operating out there in vietnam yeah because i think there's there's a sort of like sisyphean madness fighting a war like vietnam because there's no battle lines there's not even a regular army you're fighting against you're you know flying helicopters shooting people in ox carts with air to ground mm. missiles like what what are you doing so there's a, like a pointlessness to the day-to-day a, a boredom punctuated by moments of horror and so you have to find a way to keep your sanity and if that's surfing then you're gonna go to great lengths to preserve that safety net to the tragedy and to the detriment of the people you're supposed to be fighting to save and i think that's what kilgore kind of illustrates and you know he's how much actual screen time does Robert Duvall get in, you know, certainly the theatrical cut of Apocalypse Now? It certainly isn't much, but I can't yeah. think of, of, of a time in a film where one actor has appeared for such a short period of time, yet left such a huge mark on that film. It, it's because I think he's because he's so extreme and because he is kind of almost like a cartoon character. He's, he's so everything so wildly exaggerated. You talk about the hat, you've got like the yellow sort of handkerchief that he wears like the, the sort of looks like a fake shirt you know under his jacket it's just everything about him is just completely exaggerated his whole thing of you know it's getting pretty hairy in here sir is charlie's point is charlie don't surf and it's, it just rams home how ridiculous the fact you know he's putting his own men's lives at risk in order to secure a cool location to surf yeah, I mean, he blows up a school. Like, I, I, I know there's Viet Cong hiding in this village. Yeah, but yeah. That doesn't. There's still way more civilians who are killed in that raid than Viet Cong was operating. Yeah. From purely a, a filmmaking point of view, that scene is just complete joy to behold from start to finish. Yet you're seeing some awful things from both sides. But from purely filmmaking point of view, it's just remarkable. Yeah. And the introduction of Ride of the Valkyries. And then you've got Chief's face as he hears the music start to play. And, and he's thinking, well, we're thinking, it's like, what the hell is this shit? And then, you know, the you know, the helicopters are, you know, are coming over the horizon and, you know, the, the, the music is blaring. And then there's a really great cut from the noise of the helicopters where it, it, it gets cut to silence. And then you've got the tranquil sounds of the village. Then in the background, the sound of the helicopters comes in with the music. And it, again, it's sort of, builds to another crescendo is just this absolute chaos is unleashed in in what has to be for me just one of the most spectacular action scenes ever filmed it just puts a big smile on my face from an editing point of view it, it flows perfectly there's only a handful of action scenes i can think of that, that you know that come anywhere close to equal in this it's a symphony of explosions uh, yeah it's the sound design it's 
you know the cinematography like you say by Vittorio Storaro is just remarkable it, it's the you know the pyrotechnics on display the bit where you've got um, the Viet Cong running across the wooden bridge and the bridge just explodes as, as they're running across it it's the sort of percussive beat where one little scene goes into another into another and it's just phenomenal uh, and and then you know when when you know all, all the craziness sort of and, and you know you give a little lines of dialogue interspersed where you know they take out that um 50 cal gun and he's like outstanding red team outstanding we'll get you a case of beer for that and it's just these little you know one little line just yeah. shows the type of guy that Kilgore is the first and foremost he is all about looking after his men you know, he, he loves his men and they you know he he as much as he's absolutely batshit crazy he's the sort of guy that you would probably take a bullet for if you were in that situation yeah, the the further and further I get from the age of the average you know Vietnam soldier, the more insane uh, yeah. Kilgore appears to me. But th- that I think is another of the tragedies of the Vietnam War is that the average age of the American GI was nineteen years 19 old. Nineteen years old, that's yeah. insane. That is children. And so one of the my favorite bits in this action scene is when you know this seemingly unarmed woman runs up to um, a grounded Huey and tosses a sack of grenades into the Huey and it explodes and everybody dies. Yeah. How do you fight a war when your opponent appears to be an unarmed woman running at, at you seemingly in need of help? Like, do you just kill every unarmed woman you see that is acting frantic in a war zone? That You can't win a war that way. And so to put 19-year-old boys in that situation is untenable. And so for Coppola to have this extraordinary piece of cinema, you know, precede that scene or that moment creates a huge amount of cognitive dissonance, at least in me for, you know, I'm have, I have a visceral enjoyment of this action scene, but then I'm confronted with the tragedy and the reality of the Vietnam war. And that, so that's, that's what makes this one of the greatest scenes in cinema history. Yeah. And as much as I say that Kilgore, you know, he, he's got a, a love for his men and a strong connection to them. He also seems like sort of strangely sort of disconnected from it all, as if he is indestructible. And, you know, he is doing his best to sort of make as many of his men survive as possible. But he it's almost like a little throwaway line where, you know, when he sees the helicopter get blown up by the hand grenade and all the, you know, the, the, the men are, you know, coming out on fire. And he just sort of is able to sort of put that behind him and carry on. Probably like a, you know, a good colonel, you know, a, a commanding officer should do. As things die down, then he's walking around, just chucking the playing cards on the bodies. It, it's it's all very. There's a cold sort of detachment to him, uh, you know, almost as if it's just a big game. And you know, as much as he's a character that you love seeing on screen, he is pretty fucked up. I remember seeing a documentary, like when I was probably in elementary school, just flipping through the channels on television and seeing and just happening on newsreel footage or 16 millimeter footage of. American soldiers in Vietnam putting those death cards like on the corpses. And that's like an image that I'll never forget. And it's just, it's, it's horrifying that, you know, there was something that made American boys willing to turn killing Vietnamese into a card game. It's mind boggling. It is. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would think like on a surface level, this scene is almost glorifying war. But I think what it's doing is it's pointing out the absurdity of war, the, you know, yeah. the, the, the grittiness, the nastiness and the horror of war. And then it's also pointing out the fact that to be successful in this sort of theatre of absolute chaos, you would have to have men like Kilgore. You, know, you would have to have men who are completely confident just to press on 
otherwise you're just going to get obliterated by what is a force that is far more adept in their own turf at, at you know taking on an enemy because like you say you've got these 19 year old boys in this conflict you know they've got no experience as we'll see later on with clean you know Lawrence Fishburne's character who you know at the time of actual filming he was actually 14 years old but he was portraying you know a 17 year old boy you know what the hell does a 17 year old boy from you know New York know about war using him as one of the key characters on this boat I think it just just speaks so much of the absurdity and, and the sort of immorality of this conflict yeah, I mean, if you look at things like, I don't know, car insurance rates, it's clear that Americans don't trust teenagers at that age with a car. Yeah. But we're going to entrust them with an M60 machine gun on top of a boat? No, that's crazy. But again, I think it's because it's thousands of miles away. It's, yeah, you know, exactly. and how much of that was actually being seen back home at the time. Because you've got that geographical disconnect, you know, they, they didn't feel half as bad that they were getting these, you know, these young men killed pretty much for nothing. Yeah. And it, it goes back to that famous quote uh, from Muhammad Ali when he obviously, you know, re refused to get involved in active service where he said, no Vietnamese ever called me the N-word. You know, that mm. was an incredibly, he hit, he hit the nail on the head there, didn't he? Why am I going over there to fight them? They've never done anything to me. Yeah, it was, it was such... Yeah, there was such a disconnect between, you know, American culture and what was going on in Vietnam because there was so much strife, you know, on American soil, you know, in the late 60s, assassinations, you know, riots, the civil rights movement. And then all of a sudden, you know, people, you know, everyone from Lyndon Johnson to Richard Nixon, you know, or, you know, McNamara were telling us like, oh, no, this is this is the important thing over here. You know, I think a film like Apocalypse Now really illustrates that it's impossible to comprehend even for the soldiers fighting it and so how are we back home supposed to comprehend it like it's it was a really insane time in american history yeah and and then we've got again probably you know in, in a film full of incredible dialogue and and you know narration just one of the most amazing little speeches where we've got kilgore's famous uh, napalm speech After that, there's a little scene extension in the Redux version. It's going to be hard for us to go through this film in any sort of chronological order and then deal with all the later stuff that's in the Redux version later on. Putting my cards on the table, I think most of the stuff in Apocalypse Now Redux actually detracts from the film. I agree. One of the first scene extensions we see is where having 
sort of hit that line of trees with an APAM. The waves that they had actually come there to surf on get blown back out, so Lance can't surf. Willard and, and Lance, you know, they, they make their apologies to Kilgore and say, look, you know, we've got to go. And then there's a little scene afterwards where we see a lighter side of Willard, of Willard as he steals a surfboard. But to me, the scene comes across as a little bit goofy. Um, it kind of detracts from the ongoing tone of the film. You've got a, another little scene extension later on where as night falls, Kilgore is flying over them in a helicopter. You know, the, the, the PBI is kind of hidden under some trees and he's shouting on the PA system for Lance to return the board. And again, it, it's all a little bit too much on the nose for me. And it's, it's, it, it's sort of broad comedy that just doesn't fit in with this film. It's almost like a scene from Platoon or something that like Willem Dafoe would have stolen a surfboard for his own Platoon's like enjoyment or something. Yeah, it, it definitely does not fit the tone of Apocalypse Now. Like I, I get what they're trying – Coppola was trying to do, but I definitely feel that it's another – extension of an already long film it it muddies the waters of who willard is it muddies the waters of his relationship with with the the boat crew and it, it's a nice scene but yeah it just doesn't belong in the film yeah like you say you know doing something like that that would probably be something more like um, what matthew modine's character private joker would do in full metal jacket it, it just yeah. doesn't it doesn't fit in with the character of willard that we see in the theatrical version it might have worked if it was like a flashback to something he did before he was in in Saigon, like maybe before he became so disillusioned and, and drunk and, and his own brand of insanity. But even then, I, I don't know why it was even included. So you know, by the time you get to the Kilgore scene, Coppola was already you know falling behind schedule. And obviously a lot of those delays were due to the fact that the helicopters they needed were constantly being used by the Philippine government to fight off these, these communist insurgents. We, you know, we move up river, you know, we get to know our characters a little bit more and then you've got the scene at the sort of encampment with the Playboy bunnies. What, what do you think of that, John, and how it fits into Apocalypse Now? I think it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, and it certainly makes me feel uncomfortable because, you know, there's not many images of women in this film when they're not being blown up by Americans. And this is kind of the only example of that. And so there are these two women gyrating in front of these feral American GIs who eventually kind of go mad at the mere sight of them. You know, this is kind of open to interpretation, but, you know, I have read that the reason why they're in cowboy and Indian getup is because they're in another example of kind of America's incursion into uh, another sovereign territory. And that's supposed to, you know, symbolize the kind of worst of uh, American presence in a, in a foreign land. You know, you can believe that or that it was intentional or not, but it just leaves you with another deepening unease at everything that is going on in the film and that it just oh everything is unmoored here all of our morality is is going by the wayside because the uso used to be the the realm of like bob hope doing stupid puns on you know aircraft carriers you know during world war ii not this this is kind of disgusting Willard says himself in the narration that the more they tried to make that place feel like home, that the less it actually felt like home, and and the more sort of lost and far away the, you know those those young men actually thought. What one you know sort of really crazy sort of behind the scenes thing about that scene is that actual stage was initially built inland, and then after the production crew had finished building the set, Coppola had suggested that maybe it would have been a better idea for them to build it on the lip of the actual river. By which point the production crew were like, you know, are you, are you kidding us? Seriously? We've, we've built the set for you. Rebuilding it is going to be completely out of the question. But then, as it happens, fate stepped in and sent a typhoon, which destroyed the set. <laughs> so, you know, 
in a way, Coppola wasn't, he didn't obviously want that to happen, but shooting was then halted for two months. The USO set was rebuilt on the lip of the river as Coppola now wanted. And then this delay, fortunately for him, allowed him time to rewrite most of Melius' script, which, you know, he hadn't been completely happy with from the start. There's so much of the Hearts of Darkness documentary that, so, that shows Coppola and his actors just coming up with dialogue on, on the flight. M- much like, as I said earlier, um, you know, the, the episode we did about the, the overblown production of Cleopatra. You know, Apocalypse Now found itself subject of like really strong media interest back home with the film's troubleshoot as reports were coming back of, of this out-of-control film. You know, uh, the media were calling it Apocalypse Forever. And it was now $3 million over budget. And United Artists had agreed to foot the additional money that Coppola needed to continue the shoot on the agreement that Coppola would pay back the money if Apocalypse Now failed to make $40 million. Moving on, the film made much more than that and, and was a considerable hit. But this was like a huge added pressure upon a man who was already at breaking point. And, you know, this was halfway through making the film, barely. It's just astonishing that you would go so far into a movie of the scale and not have a lockdown script. Like, that is one of the clearest signs of a trouble production and a bad film, frankly, uh, when you're rewriting the script midway through shooting. And so it's a goddamn miracle that Apocalypse Now is as great as it is. But it's also more remarkable that if you've seen Hearts of Darkness, that Milius was convinced by Coppola that his script changes were the right changes. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody who has, is as forceful and strong-willed as Milius to be turned around almost 180 and is thinking about the script is you know, really amazing and, and a testament to Coppola's ability to sell himself and his film to even the most uh, skeptical critics. Yeah, absolutely. So then looking at the actual cast of the film and, and you know we, we, we've got the PBR crew you've got Frederick Forrest a chef who is, is described in Willard's narration as a man wound too tightly for Vietnam what do you think of his character? I love the entire bow crew I think they're a, a great set of characters and they all kind of engender a great amount of sympathy in the way that Willard or Kurtz kind of can't in, in the viewer because you know the crew kind of strike me as you know everyday men yeah. who were drafted or you know had no, no other choice but to go into this war and are trying to make it the best for themselves and i think for somebody like especially chef who seems to be trying his hardest to get through the war and, and is kind of cognizant of the insanity of it you know somebody like lance he kind of comes off as you know kind of an airhead because you see him like sunning mm-hmm. himself on, on on the on the boat but chef You know, he tells that story about going into the Navy because he wanted to be a better cook. And then he saw how they were boiling sides of beef and he decided, no, this is not what I want. And so he's trying to make compromises. He's trying to meet the war halfway and it just is not letting him. And he's eventually just driven off the deep end by the kind of magical appearance of a tiger, which is, you know, an insane thing. So, yeah, I I really feel sorry for everybody on that boat. You know, the the four actors they picked you've got Frederick Forrest as chef you've got Albert Hall as Chief Phillips you know the boat commander you've got Sam Bottoms as this sort of like tripped out surfer dude Lance Johnson and then you've got you know remarkably you've got a 14 year old Lawrence Fishburne or Larry Fishburne as he was called at the time as as clean this this young 17 year old lad and, and Fishburne had lied about his age declaring that he was 18 when he was actually 14 you've got each of these four characters sort of fit so well and you're able then or, or Coppola is able then through each of these characters to say so much about Vietnam you've got the 14 year old lad the fact that he represents 
you know, as you say, the average age of 19 and the fact you've got these inexperienced young men who are being sent thousands of miles to die for a cause that they've got no real vested interest in. You know, Sam Bottoms as Lance, he, he is just basically tripping through this whole thing. And I love that little scene where <laughs> after he's painted his face and 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 chef says to him hey you know you're acting kind of funny man he says oh you know that last acid tab i had i dropped it and then chef's reaction is you dropped acid far out <laughs> it's just <laughs> this is brilliant and apparently in 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 hearts of darkness sam bottom says that he actually dropped acid throughout the shoot but during the Dulong bridge shoot he actually took speed because at that point they were shooting throughout nights you know so even you know, much as Willard's character had been told by Coppola, you know, this character is you and he is what you're experiencing at this time. Did he say a similar thing to Sam Bottoms and say, yeah, Sam, fill your boots and take you know, whatever drugs you want? I know that drug use was rampant in Vietnam, but I can't, I can't imagine what it was like to experience those things while tripping on acid. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how, like, how that came across as a good idea. And I feel sorry for anybody who went to that place and reached the point where like they thought acid was the solution to whatever they're experiencing. Yeah. And I can't imagine what it was like, you know, on day 200 of shooting this movie, taking speed. So everything seemed more intense and you could stay conscious during night shoots. Like yeah. it's, it, everything is crazy about this movie. Exactly. Yep. And then you've got to think by that point, <laughs> you know, Sam Bottoms is taking drugs. Maybe that's what got him through it. And then you've got, yeah. you know, you've got Martin Sheen who's smoking, Four packs of cigarettes a day, yeah. and then obviously, as we'll come to, look what happened to him. Fucking heart attack. Heart attack. <laughs> 36-year-old man almost dies. God, and I'm sorry, one of my favorite quotes from, from that movie is, uh, he says, yeah, if Marty dies, I want to hear that everything is okay <laughs> until I say that Marty is dead. This is crazy. God. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was, it was the 1st of March, 1977. Bearing in mind they'd been shooting by that point for nearly a year. And, and Sheen was experiencing chest pains. He was rushed to hospital. Um, he'd, he'd had a considerable heart attack and had even been read his last rites. He was 36 years old. Coppola's reaction is the fact that he was a combination of scared and angry because he's like, holy shit, you know, I've had a typhoon. You know, I've, I've had the, the, you know, the, the Philippine government taking the helicopters off me. And, and you know, that's just one of a, a hundred different problems I've had. You know, that is one of the most telling excerpts from Hearts of Darkness, where, he, you know, he's ranting about pushing on with Sheen and, and, and or without Sheen and working around things until he recovered or died. You know, what would they have done if he'd not recovered, if he'd actually died? Yeah, it would, it would have been a loss and he, he would have been bankrupt, basically. Yeah. Like, uh, or maybe he would have, he probably would have tried to start from the beginning. I think at that point he was that far gone that he would try to start from the beginning. I'm sure it would not have happened, but I think... It would have been one of the greatest unmade movies ever. Absolutely. And thank God, you know, Sheen did recover. Yeah. And apparently when he did return on the 19th of April, 1977, five weeks after having his heart attack, Coppola thought he looked much better, perhaps perhaps even too good, because he, you know, he looked far more healthier than he did, you know, before he had the heart attack. So there was potentially a continuity error. And he maybe thought, you know, you don't look like the same disheveled, sort of emaciated guy that you did five weeks ago. But during that time where, you know, Sheen was in recovery, Melius was actually brought back in to rewrite the script he'd originally written, but which Coppola himself had rewritten because, you know, Coppola's rewrites just weren't coming together. I haven't seen anywhere that accurately documents how the script changes were made because I don't think, you know, doing a film like this where the script is just going through constant rewrites, things can be properly logged. So I don't think we're ever going to know 
who wrote what in that film or you know whether or not 70% of the film is what Melius wrote or or if Coppola just threw out most of it and added his own stuff well especially because once we get to the Kurtz compound most of Kurtz's dialogue is kind of ad-libbed because Marlon Brando didn't memorize his lines and then a lot of the stuff that Dennis Hopper was saying was ad-libbed because there was like Coppola and Brando and Hopper were at loggerheads about the script and how to interpret the lines. And so a lot of that stuff was like made up and interpretation of poetry. And so it's all lost in the sea of memory and film history at this point. You know, it's a very sedate film for, for, for a lot of it. And you, you, you've got this sort of stream of consciousness narration and these like sort of beautiful shots of, and it seems like so much of Apocalypse Now is filmed at Magic Hour. You know, yeah. No wonder this film took nearly two years to shoot because Vittorio Storaro is shooting so much stuff at Magic Hour. Anyone who knows anything about filmmaking knows that if you're going to shoot anything at Magic Hour, you've pretty much got about 40 minutes tops. Uh, and doing that, then you still have to make adjustments for the change in light. You know, when it comes down to it, you haven't got long at all to get your setup done, to get your shot done. And, you know, how much of this film or, you know, how much of what we see in the final film is magic hour shooting? It's no wonder, you know, the film went, you know, so far over production. Yeah, and in this part of the world, the weather can change real fast. Mm. And so you could have gotten 95% of a shot that was magic in magic hour and it's ruined because a monsoon starts. Yeah. And that's just what happens in Vietnam because the weather can change so quickly. So it just must have been maddening for people. You know, people who are used to shooting inside a yeah. studio. Then you've got the scene of the, you know, if the if the Kilgore scene shows both the horrors and the absurdity of war, the shooting of the Vietnamese people on the Sampan boat is just shows that sort of magnified. You know, they they pull up on this boat, and you've got um, Chief. He he's adamant that you know they need to you know carry out their duties and check every boat they come across. He says to the chef to go on you know open that tin open that can you know and, and you know they're smuggling weapons and, and and god knows what to their people you know we we need to sort of put a stop to this and then you've got this girl she she runs towards something and then all of a sudden a trigger happy clean opens fire you know they just massacre all these people on this boat and as we later find out it, it was to save a puppy which you know just puts a, a really nasty sting on the whole scene. Fishburne said that his character was to represent these inexperienced kids who were just snatched up as cannon fodder and used for this war. Well, it's his experience or his inexperience that sort of ends up in all of these people getting killed. It, you know, it, yeah. it, it's a it's just a real nasty, unpleasant scene. Yeah, like I said before, the things like the Miley massacre were very fresh in the minds of you know, uh, American moviegoers, because that was just a few years pr prior. Mm. And obviously the My Life Massacre was, you know, upwards of 500 deaths and involved like the stalking and execution of women and children. So it is far outpaced what goes on here. Yeah. But I think the, the sort of results and consequences of giving machine guns to children to point at children in case there might be a bomb hidden underneath a bunch of junk on a boat. Like this is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, like so it, it just ma magnifies the absurdity of the war you know once again and just it kind of makes you like uh can't will just get to this goddamn compound and kill kurtz and end this hellish journey yeah and then as they move up river there's what what eventually leads to clean's death you know it, it's bad enough that you've got this young 17 year old probably the most innocent one on on this boat apart from what he's just done to those poor Vietnamese people on the sampan. You know, he gets killed, and then for me, what is probably the most moving scene in the film is, is Chief's point-of-view shot as we're looking at Chief 
who is looking at this young African-American boy who had died thousands of miles from home in a conflict that many people felt the US had no right being involved in. And, and for me, it is the most profound and, and like moving scene in the film. And, and then, you know, in the Redux version, we move from that to the French plantation scene. What's, what's your take on, on what is probably the, the most sort of lengthy insert in, in, in the Redux version? I think that is definitely an example of one of the Redux scenes that takes away from the overall narrative because it's such a huge left turn and it's it's such a reversal from the tragedy that we just seen that it takes away from the power of that previous sequence, which is so, you know, tightly constructed and, and so kind of ferociously shot and and jarring. Whereas this scene is so languid and, and kind of hallucinatory and, and quiet and, you know, shredded and missed. And it's beautifully shot. Hmm. Like, it's an extraordinary piece of filmmaking, but it just doesn't belong in this movie. I know Coppola was kind of also trying to tell the whole history of the Vietnam War and the, and the conflict and to show how America was just repeating the mistakes of the French and their colonization of Indochina, et cetera, et cetera. But just not right now, not in this movie. I, I just don't know what Coppola was, you know, what he was trying to say. There's a lot of dialogue in this, a lot of talk of of politics, particularly in relation to the French and their history of involvement in, 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 in wars. It belongs in a completely different film. It, it, it finishes with, with Willard sort of being seduced by this, this French woman, and then it, it cuts back to the boat, and there's no resolution yeah. to the scene. So even when, you know, there, there's, there seems like as if there's still footage missing to sort of give the scene relevance. I, I just don't, I don't get it, and it's one of my many problems with the Redux version. Let, let's just sort of address this and maybe put a full stop on this now. John, what, what is your overall take on the Redux version, um, and, and do you think it's necessary? My overall take is that it's interesting. It detracts from the overall narrative, uh, but I think a lot of this footage is beautiful movie making. And if you're a fan of the film, it deserves to be watched. But I think the superior version of the film is the theatrical cut. Yeah, no, I think I think we we were chatting about this recently on the um, on on the wrong real sort of private chat group that we're all part of. I'd said that I'm a big fan of of most extended versions of films that I love. And even some films that I didn't particularly like have been improved by longer cuts where you know the narrative is elaborated upon and a lot of the time films which have been truncated in theatrical form have been given more time to breathe. Films like um, Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven you know and I know there's takes on whether or not the theatrical or the extended versions are better but personally I think the extended Lord of the Rings are far better films. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kingdom of Heaven is one of my like the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is honestly one of my all time favorite movies and like one of my all time favorite epics. Like I love that movie. I mean, I I know that's like an an unpopular opinion, I guess, but for for some reason that director's cut really connected with me and it yeah. boggles my mind that somebody says, "Oh no, we need to make this like mm, like an hour or less." Yeah. Like, mm. oh, so you just made a shitty two hour movie? Like, what 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 was the point of that? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. And and you know Ridley Scott is no stranger to butchered theatrical cuts mm. of his films with yeah. Blade Runner, which is another one of my favorite films. But the redux of Apocalypse Now is not Blade Runner or King Kingdom of Heaven. It, it's messy. It's like you said with the transition from the French colony or plantation sequence back into the main narrative. It it's still incomplete. And so I I'm glad we got to see that footage, but I just 
the theatrical cut is the, the cut of Apocalypse Now, in my opinion. I, you know, I fully agree. The, you know, the theatrical cut of Apocalypse Now is perfect. I, I don't think there's any additional footage from Redux that I would put into into Apocalypse Now just because I think, yeah, you know, the film could benefit from this little scene extension, from this little extra line of dialogue. I genuinely think the theatrical cut is as perfect as that film's ever going to get. And it's, it's going to be intriguing because later on this year, we're going to see for the 40th anniversary, we're going to see what Francis Ford Coppola is, is labeling the final cut. As Adam Rakoff um, said, I think earlier on last week when we were talking about Apocalypse Now on the Wrong Real Chat group, at the moment, the running time for that film is pretty much the same as a theatrical cut. Is that a mistake? Um, is it not the actual running time of the cut? Has the actual cut been finalised yet? I don't know. But it's going to be interesting to see whether this is a sort of bridging the gap between the theatrical cut and Redux, or if it's just going to be potentially, maybe he cuts even more footage out of the theatrical cut. But you know, it's going to be very interesting to see that. But yeah, for me, the Redux version, it detracts from what the film is we see too much of the human side or, or the, the sort of lighter side of Willard which I think doesn't do his character any good at all you've got scenes like the French plantation scene that you know the, the extended play by bunny scene is just it's odd it's a little bit off kilter it's uncomfortable and just doesn't fit in with the film at all yeah yeah I, I totally agree that that extended play by bunny scene just you know makes it makes you like the crew less really because if if anybody out there is unfamiliar it's uh willard sort of meets the manager uh of the playboy bunnies who has kind of crash landed the, their helicopter and he is prostituting the playboy bunnies to the boat crew in exchange for fuel and it's a very uncomfortable sequence where it's clear that the playboy bunnies have gone insane and they're not really aware of what is going on and we're seeing the boat crew who we've liked up until this point kind of take advantage of them sexually and it also doesn't even deal with any themes connected to the rest of the film, so it seems sort of out of place in the narrative structure. So yeah, it's just, it's just like doesn't belong there. Yeah, and you know, before we eventually get to um, you know Willard's meeting with Kurtz, one little scene I just like to mention is is the Dolong Bridge scene. It's like the sort of final outpost before we get into Cambodia, and then you've got you know you've got all of these guys who are scrambling to get onto the PBR, who are saying you know take me, take me, but they don't realise this boat is actually going upriver. It's not there to rescue them, and then you meet these guys who are literally just at like the, the sort of you know the, the the last sort of bastion of hope for you know America's incursion into Vietnam, where things have just gone completely batshit crazy. You know no one's in charge there. And then you've got that incredible scene with Herb Rice's character of Roach, where he uses the um, grenade launcher to take out that one surviving Viet Cong soldier who's like sort of mocking them all. And he looks completely spaced out and, and just not there. Uh, and Willard says to him, Soldier, do you know who's in charge here? And he just looks at him, he says, yeah, and walks off. W what do you think that scene's all about? What, what do you think he means by yeah without actually answering Willard? It could be, yeah, you, hmm. or yeah, nothing. Or, you know, chaos, you know, the, yeah. the unfathomable struggle of the human condition to not go crazy in this world, you know, and anything. And it's incredibly terrifying. Yeah. And this is a scene that really struck me very powerfully uh, because it really is echoing uh, an analogous scene in the book Heart of Darkness where uh, the main character encounters, you know, a, a bunch of colonialists blindly firing into the jungle and going crazy, much like these soldiers are. And, and so it, it really parallels the novel in a way that uh, the, the rest of the film 
a very direct way, in in my opinion, that the rest of the film kind of doesn't. I think what it does, it, it does with the bare minimum of dialogue and just yeah. you know, just just the performance alone. It, it it tells you everything you need to know. And my take is when he's asked, you know, who's in charge here, he's like, well, yeah, like you say, chaos, the devil, you know, whatever is causing this sort of just craziness. No one's in charge, effectively. We eventually get to Curtis Compound. One of the first things we see, they're met by Dennis Hopper, who is credited only as photojournalist. Um, what do you think of, of Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now? Well, he's certainly at peak Dennis Hopper yeah. throughout this performance. <laughs> and it, it it's it's an incredible element to introduce into the film, you know, like almost two hours in. He's so opposite of Willard in every way. Like he's so high energy, so intense, so you know, effusive of his own opinions about, you know, everything about Vietnam, about the war, about Kurtz. And he just, you know, won't shut up. Um, and so, but he's also like incredibly dangerous because he's so enthusiastic about what Kurtz is doing, but he's surrounded by, you know, bodies on pikes, heads hanging from the, from the trees. He's so lost in the woods with Kurtz and Kurtz's mission that he could just snap and start strangling any one of the boat crew or you know he could have a knife and stab somebody he's just so unstable and it's so off-putting to watch it but it's it's a brilliant performance i think and you know as we meet him we then see like you say these bodies hanging from trees and and one of the craziest things you know that's come from hearts of darkness and 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 just reading around you know the making of the film that just is just hilarious in, in a sort of sick way is that you know the decapitated heads on the ground were actually the tribes people that were used, you know, to betray these, you know, Cambodian, you know, Vietnamese people. They were actually buried up to their necks from eight in the morning until six at night. And in between shooting, they were covered with umbrellas between takes because of obviously the intense hundred degree heat. There's no doubt, I think, that Coppola was taking advantage of some very cheap labor and getting these people yeah. to do things that he could never have achieved back home in the States, you know, under the Hollywood system. And it's just so indicative of how difficult Coppola was making his own life at that point. Like, there's not an easier way for you to do that. Like, you had to dig a pit for every head (laughs) to keep, then refill it, then, like, you know, make sure those people could drink water and eat, you know, while they're buried up to their necks so they don't die. Then you had to get crew members to put up umbrellas and then take them down when shooting starts like just just like have prop people make skulls like mm. why make this so difficult for yourself like yeah. it's it's so crazy to me and going back to hopper you know he he states at the time he wasn't exactly in a great place regarding his career you know he'd not too long ago he directed easy rider in 69 which was a huge hit um, he then made, I think it was the last movie in 71, which was a commercial and critical failure. You know, his drug use was well-known, well-documented. But if anything, in Apocalypse Now, it just it adds sort of to the required manic nature of his character. Yeah, he's just a... He's almost a cartoon of himself mm. in, in this point, or like a cartoon version of, of his performance in Easy Rider. So it's almost like we're seeing the 60s die, a strangling, gurgling death yeah. in... Dennis Hopper's character. And then, so moving on to, well, in, in fact, before we get to Brando, Scott Glenn, he turns up, he doesn't say a word, he's literally like a, a background car- character. You know, did he have footage removed from the film? Was he supposed to be, you know, more of an established character? I just, you know, t- to have Scott Glenn go all the way out there and not even say anything, it just seems crazy. Was he a known actor at the time? 
Um, in, would this have been like? Well, in, no, in '79, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think the you know the first sort of major role I remember Scott Glenn from is probably the right stuff in '83. Yeah, honest answers. I, I don't really know um, how well known he was at the time. Yeah, he, so I'm looking at his IMDb right now. He definitely had a few credited roles before then. Um, but yeah, it seems weird that because he's credited as Lieutenant Richard M. Colby, mm. so it seems strange to give him a full name no lines and then dennis hopper photojournalist and then reams of lines so it seems like there there was something there that we were missing from scott glenn possibly uh, i'm fascinated about and then obviously when brando eventually you know turned up i think the agreement was he would be paid one million dollars up front and then i think his was his final fee three million dollars or yeah three million yeah you know i think the last time we'd seen brando on screen was probably uh 1978 superman superman the movie which was filmed in 77 78 he he looked okay he looked fine but you know in just over a year he's put on a hell of a lot of weight bear in mind that his character was written to be this sort of live emaciated sort of person as if the jungle had been eaten away at him you know, obviously Coppola was extremely frustrated and just ran with it as if Kurtz had succumbed to excess and gluttony, which kind of, you know, that's that's in microcosm sort of describes this film as a whole. Both the actor and the director would discuss every little detail of who Kurtz was and his motivations, not helped by the fact that Marlon Brando didn't even bother reading Heart of Darkness, didn't even, you know, read the script as he should. And, you know, by this, by this late on in an excruciating shoot, I don't even think Coppola you know, really cared about such details as, as Kurtz's character motivations by now. And I think you can see a lot in the, in the behind-the-scenes stuff, certainly between um, Dennis Hopper and, and Coppola, who was asking for you know similar guidance. He can be heard snapping at, at, at Hopper, you know, with his obvious frustration coming to the surface. Then you've got you know Brando, who is known for being a particularly difficult actor. It's a miracle that Coppola was able to get any sort of performance out of him at all. I mean, it's what is on screen is undeniably compelling, but he made everyone's life so difficult on this movie. And that's what to me is is frustrating about, you know, Brando's kind of career is that he 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 was able to kind of coast through so many films, not memorize his lines, have like other actors wear his own lines on their front so he could read them off or have them posted around around set. And in Hearts of Darkness, you see Coppola being willing to rewrite Kurtz's motivation wholesale. Okay, well, yeah, you're instead of this emaciated 150 pound like package of skin and sinew, you're this, you know, glutton who's given himself over to excess. And then Brando was too embarrassed about his weight to give into that. So he's giving everyone on set no outs. So it's like, what what are you like, what do you want from this movie then? Mm. So it's a credit to Coppola that he was able to kind of edit together what is on screen and because i I recently watched uh the herzog film aguirre wrath of god uh, which almost feels like a 16th century version of what apocalypse now originally was where a very small crew with a small camera goes and shoots handheld footage of an insane journey through the jungle and you know on that film Werner Herzog was able to sort of like manipulate his star Klaus Kinsey into giving him the performance that he wanted. Like, for example, if he wanted Klaus Kinsey to be quiet, he would make him yell for take after take after take until he was too tired to do anything else but be quiet and contemplative. So I don't know where Herzog got the energy to manipulate and control his star in the insane Klaus Kinsey, but Coppola was not able to kind of corral uh, Brando 
maybe Brino's star power kind of overshadowed everything. But it's interesting that, you know, Screen Legend almost sunk this already bloated ship. I do kind of wish that the director and star were able to meet at a more satisfactory place to, for what we could have seen on screen. Well, yeah, you, you talk about Kinski and Herzog and, and, and sinking a ship. There's so many parallels yeah. <laughs> between... Yeah. Uh, Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness, you know, the documentary. And then you've got Herzog's own film, which was made with Klaus Kinski, Fitzcarraldo, and then the subsequent documentary that was made about the making of that, Burden of Dreams, which yeah. I would argue is actually as good as Fitzcarraldo, maybe even better. And then, you know, if, if you're going to go and watch those two films, which I strongly recommend, personally, I think Fitzcarraldo is... It's Herzog's best film. Burden of Dreams is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen about film, much like Heart of Darkness is. But then another one of my absolute favourites is the documentary about Herzog's really just insanely crazy relationship with Klaus Kinski, My Best Fiend. Yeah. It's just remarkable. So many stories come from My Best Fiend relating to the shoot of Aguirre and, and just how similar it was or it... it even crazier, I've got to say, some some of those stories, whether you believe them or not, about I can't remember if it's Herzog or Kinski firing a, a gun through a hut, hoping that they were going to kill the other one, and they actually one of the crew uh, was shot in the hand. It's just absolutely insane. But you know, I think that's what these crazy shoots in the jungle do. And yeah, Al Pacino, people like him were right. Yeah, I, I no, thank you, Francis. Uh, I think I'm going to turn this one down. But it's fascinating to me that. Herzog would go back to the jungle several more times, yeah. most recently in 2006 with Rescue Dawn. Yeah. Like he, it seems like he enjoys that insanity, whereas Coppola was almost broken by it. And, you know, Megan Aguirre and, and Fitzcarraldo, he was in the middle of a jungle with an extremely difficult actor. What does he do then for Rescue Dawn? He takes Christian Bale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he either never learned his lesson or he likes no, it. No, I, I think he's a glutton for punishment, really. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the most sort of tellingly poetic moments of the Hearts of Darkness documentary is when we see Coppola talking to Brando and giving him cues, and and he is is trying to get out of Brando who his character is, and he says he says to him to Brando or to Kurtz, why are we in Vietnam? And Brando responds in character. He says, it's our time to grab this moment in history. It's our time to teach. And you know, that little line which didn't make it into the final film says so much about the Vietnam conflict, America's part in it and kind of in a way that the making of this fucking crazy film you know it it it, it speaks about america's you know sort of mentality going into what is ultimately going to be a doomed conflict and then you know the sheer ballsy insanity on coppola's part of trying to make this film in the circumstances which he made it yeah and i mean one of the most poignant lines for me is coppola himself uh saying that making this that he at one point in this movie says it's like a voice crying out saying please it's not working somebody please get me out of this yeah 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 i'm making a bad movie and so to be you know 200 days into shooting dealing with marlon brando dealing with dennis hopper and and in the back of your mind you're thinking you're making a bad movie but you're the director you have to be the one who's most confident and most committed to your own vision and he's having like a an emotional breakdown every day. It must have been terrifying to be like the key grip on this movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, we 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 could go on all night talking about you know all the little crazy anecdotes, but I think you know the best thing the listeners can do, aside from going back and watch rewatching Apocalypse Now, which is always a good idea. Just if you haven't seen it, please check out Hearts of Darkness: A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, a 1991 documentary. It's basically cribbed together from a load of footage that um, Coppola's wife Eleanor Coppola shot during the making of the film, and then was later sort of edited and sort of redirected by a guy called Fax Bar and and L Eleanor Coppola, I think, co-directed the film but it, you know it also features and um, you know contemporary interviews from around about 1990 1991 with you know with people like dennis harper martin sheen george lucas even you know one of the things that we forgot to mention at the very beginning is initially orson wells tried i think back in 1938 yes. to, to 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 adapt heart of darkness into a film things didn't pan out and then he goes on to make some uh, little film i think it's called citizen kane no, no, no. A, a little film, little, little film, that, called, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I've, I've heard of this thing called Rosebud, but I'm, I'm not sure what it means. But yeah, so if if nothing else, you should see Hearts of Darkness because you can hear Wells's narration from what would have been his Hearts of Darkness movie, and yeah. that is worth the price of admission alone. Yeah, yeah, because he d- he did a, a radio adaptation of Hearts of Darkness, didn't he? Yes. And then you know, if you look at the parallels between you know the end of Orson Welles's career, where you've got this actor who is literally like one of the most respected people in his field has just ballooned into this big unhealthy looking fat guy much as brando did you know later on in his life it's just a fascinating sort of you know parallel between those two those two men yeah and and i think tragically both men weren't able to appreciate their own careers because i i think both wells and brando kind of distanced themselves from their earlier work which you know i i, I know it's frustrating when people just want to talk to you about the thing that you did 40 years ago but you know that they made some beautiful art and so i i I hope that they were able to appreciate it in in, you know in the end end of things yeah so you know as as a way of sort of bringing in the um you know the the bell hui helicopter in for a safe landing if if we could sort of maybe wrap things up now because apocalypse now it opened eventually after i think didn't they edit for about a period of about two years from 77 to 79 yeah you know that's two years i think i i've heard numbers which border on i i i don't believe them but that he shot somewhere in the region of seventeen thousand hours of footage which was eventually edited down into a two and a half hour film 17 it, it can't be true even seven thousand sounds ridiculous but it was just completely out of control and it's just a miracle that if, you know the final film ended up being a success because it opened on the 19th of August 1979. It went on to gross more than 150 million dollars worldwide in its initial theatrical run. It won three Golden Globes, two Academy Awards for Best Cinematography and Best Sound, and obviously the prestigious Palme d'Or at Cannes. What what do you think is the sort of enduring legacy of Apocalypse Now, John? And and for you, you know, how does it fit in the sort of the league table of of, of greatest war films ever made? I mean, I think it's, you know, one of the most remarkable films ever made because it defied all logic in every way. You know, there are production problems, script changes at the last minute, a laborious post-production process, you know, troubles on set with actors, um, middling reviews, much publicized bad publicity during shooting. Everything was pointing that this was going to be a sinking ship that would ruin careers, and it ended up being a commercial success that won Oscars and was another feather in the cap uh, for Coppola. And so I think it, it, it was just a testament to his sheer will in getting it made. It's my favorite film about Vietnam because I think it's a difficult film to approach. 
um, an easy film to appreciate, but a, a film that requires multiple viewings to kind of absorb, to, to make a real meal out of it. And so it really, personally, it really helped me develop a taste for films that, you know, require you to think critically about them. You know, as much as I, the Raiders of the Lost Ark is always going to be one of my all time favorite movies. That's something that, that an eight year old can, you know, in, enjoy as much as an eight year old. But this movie requires you to kind of think about the tragedy and horror of war in a very kind of stark and um, surreal way. Uh, and so I'm always going to be thankful for this movie f- for that, for, you know, to challenge me both as a cinephile and as, as frankly, as an American citizen who, by living here, uh, the Vietnam War is you know a part of my history. Yeah, one thing I you know I took away from rewatching Hearts of Darkness recently is obviously we've covered Cleopatra you know previously on on Film Eighty Nine, which was just an absolute insane shoot that lasted you know the best part of of, of three years at least. Unfortunately, I don't think the final film stands up. Cleopatra is is nowhere near ever going to appear in my top five historical epics. I don't even think it would appear in my top ten. But then to have a shoot just go completely out of control, as as absolutely batshit crazy as Apocalypse Now did, and to take as long as it did, you know, to take three years from the start of initial shooting to, in fact, I think it was more than three years, um, you know, when the film finally came out in August '79. You know, for that final film to be as good as it is, it, it's just a miracle, and it is easily one of the greatest war films ever made. I think it's one of the greatest films of the 70s. It, it's not a film I think is easy to to fully appreciate on the first viewing. I think you've got to put in the work. And I, I think for me, maybe on the, on the second or third viewing, it sort of hit me how remarkable a film it is. I would only watch the Redux version once as just a curio, just to see what see that additional footage. I would maybe even argue that you don't ever need to see Redux because I think once you've got in your head the fact that that additional footage padding out the film exists, I think it can actually take away from how perfect the original is. So as I would say to people, you know, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, by all means watch the extended cuts, because for me personally they're better. If someone said to me, oh yeah, I saw Apocalypse Now, I really liked it, would you recommend Redux? I'd have to say, do you know what? Maybe not. Maybe it's worth staying away from, because I think it's one rare occasion where a director being able to go back and put in a lot of the footage that he felt the need to excise originally when he made the film, it doesn't work. It It's one of the best cases of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it was a perfect film as it is. I really hope, I really do hope that this new version we're going to see later on in the year, this final cut of Apocalypse Now, is maybe just going to be a slightly retweaked version of, of the theatrical cut. I don't want to see the French plantation scene. I don't want to see the extra Kilgore stuff. You know, I don't want to see Martin Jean's character nicking a skateboard. And, and I don't want to see sort of light-hearted moments like that. And I certainly don't want to see the additional stuff of the Playboy bunnies. You know, I don't need any of the additional footage. Whether or not he's just going to slightly edit things and, and rejig things, maybe even cut things out to make the film run a little bit quicker, I don't know. But it's going to be interesting to see what he does. It's almost been as long – well, not quite. It's It's been many years since the Redux version came out. So Coppola might have changed as a filmmaker as much as he did between the theatrical mm. cut and the Redux version. So his, his mind might have gone a further 180 degrees yeah. since then. So who knows? You know, we, we saw it when George Lucas, you know, 20 years after he made Star Wars, went back and, and tinkered with the film and just started changing things. And – you know, now look at the films we've got. You know, people are crying out for those original theatrical cuts of Star Wars to be re-released. You know, Lucas is saying that you know the original negatives you know no longer exist. 
I don't believe that. And as much as I don't mind some of the things which were changed for the special edition on the whole, I would want to see those original theatrical versions released again. It is great that we've got both versions of Apocalypse Now, both of them, you know, in beautiful HD. But for me, I'm always going to go back to the theatrical version. It's, it's just an incredible film. And how it ended up being so good is just beyond me. I think it's just testament to the fact that even when he was under incredible pressure like that, Francis Ford Coppola was at that time during the 1970s just at the absolute top of his game. Oh, with, without a doubt. I mean, he was able to take all the lessons that he learned on making The Godfather, on making the conversation, and apply them into this kind of mad journey into the jungle. Um, it probably could have been done in a lot more professional capacity with a lot less labor, a lot less money spent, but you can't argue with the finished product, and it's one of the greatest films ever made. Absolutely, John. Couldn't agree more. Just to wrap things up now, uh, thank you so much for finally coming on Film 89. I wish I could have got you on earlier. It's been far too long in the waiting, and anytime you want to come back on, just please pitch something to us. I'm, I'm sure we'll come to an agreement as to maybe getting you know the rest of the team back on as well, so you know there's more of us. It's been such an honor, Sky. I, I really, really appreciate it. Film 89 is one of the best podcasts, period, and certainly one of the best movie podcasts out there. The rapport you guys have with each other, with your guests, it's outstanding to listen to not only that i'm italian and i have podcasted on two coppola movies neither <laughs> of them are the godfather so if anybody out there wants me to guest on a podcast for the conversation just to make it a trifecta i'm up for it <laughs> awesome no and john i gotta say on, on behalf of the rest of the guys who uh, you know write for film 89 we, we genuinely mean this you, your your support is just is so appreciated yourself and you know the rest of the wrong real crew and all of our followers but you know you in particular have just been you know so strong in your support of us of late and it is really appreciated so yeah we're gonna have to start sort of you know looking at further topics to get you back on because it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you tonight about what is one of my favorite films feeling is mutual sir oh thank you where can people um find you on social media john if they want to hit you up to talk about comics films or, or anything else I am at Quasar Sniffer on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I love talking about comics, about movies, Star Trek, Star Wars, all the good nerd shit. Hit me up anytime. Uh, you can find Comics Connection on Facebook. That's Comics with an X, where we also discuss what is going on in the world of comics. Uh, go to your find your local comic book store. The great thing about comic book store employees is that they are friendly. They want you to be reading comics. They want you to come back. It's a fun place read comics yeah please people like john people who love comic book movies if you want to see more of them then you've got to support the comic book industry because you know as much as some of these adaptations are slightly different they're all based on the original source material you know, they, you know there's nothing better than having that tactile feel of a comic or a graphic novel in your hand you just please get your local comic store guys and girls give them all your support because it's, a, it's an art form that we need to make sure endures so please, um, if you could give us a like and subscribe uh, on iTunes or whatever your listening platform is, it'd be much appreciated. And please, if you could, leave us an iTunes review. It means a hell of a lot to us. You can find all of our writing on film89.co.uk. The guys have been kicking out some great pieces of late. Uh, we've had uh, Stephen Saunders writing some great pieces. Steve Amos has written some more great articles. Please check out my ongoing Alien series, which is... Uh, coinciding with the uh, 40th anniversary of Alien. Um, I'll be finishing it off shortly with um, a few more pieces bringing that series to a close. You can follow us all on Facebook and Twitter at Film89UK and you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook 
at Sky Movies. Uh, big shout out to all our followers. Thank you so much for your continued support. Uh, the next one is going to be uh, it's going to be tying into a, a certain film that's due out in oh, just over a week uh, that I absolutely have been looking forward to more than any other film this year, a certain Marvel film. And then hopefully we're going to have a little bit of a break because I'm going to be in America for a couple of weeks. But then when I come back, hopefully we're going to be again Mr. Bill Scurry back on to talk about a film that I absolutely cannot get my or oh, cannot wait to get my teeth into. So as usual, everyone, stay safe, stay happy, but most importantly, stay classy.